Welcome to Culture Cryptids, the horror podcast that's probably actually three gremlins in a trench coat. Happy New Year, Corey. What the fuck are you doing? It's February. (laughs) You can't just start something with being like, Happy New Year. By the way, it's February. We missed all of January. Yeah, I don't know. It works. It's the first (laughs) episode of... In the new year. It doesn't work. Okay. <laughs> it was a, it was a valid effort, but like, I feel like maybe that was the wrong approach. I, that is a consistent <laughs> thing to say about anything that I do a lot of the time. It, it was a valiant effort, but. But it doesn't work. Maybe not the right approach. My dating life. What? Wow. <laughs> is, is that what we're doing? Is this where we're going this episode? I mean, I guess thematically. <laughs> it makes sense. It works. It really does. It yeah. Oh, I, I finally got to see the trailer for the new Resident Evil game. Yeah, you did. Yeah, I did. I already knew so much information going into it, though. Like, And by so much information, I mean like tall lady, tall, big lady. She big. She big. And, and that was, I wondered why. I'm like, why is everyone so into this woman? I mean, and, because we want her to step on us. I don't think that this requires that much thought. It, it, like, I've seen enough memes at this point to know, like, it, 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 death by snoo snoo is yeah. what everybody wants from her. She big. We're <laughs> she into big. it. I don't know. And I don't know if this is the same for the straights, but I will tell you that every queer per- person I know is like, no, she's tall and we would like her to step on us. That's, we just all have come to that agreement. Yeah, I'm there for it. Mm-hmm. I ain't mad about it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Did you know that she is nine foot? Nine six, eight. Oh, six. Nine, nine six. Nine yes. six. Okay. With the hat and the heels. It's very important that Capcom needed you to know that that's her height with the hat and the heels. So speaking of things that Capcom needed us to know, <laughs> Capcom. Um, I the expression ne- on your face <laughs> is alarming. I want I, everyone to know. I, I need to check the validity of this. This looks real. I've seen lots of people post it, but I had to like screenshot it. Um, and I'll let you take a look at it and then I will read it because podcasting is not a visual medium. But no, um, I, <laughs> I, I don't. It says Capcom confirms pegging scene in upcoming Resident Evil game. The video game giant confirmed that there will be one or more pegging scenes as part of Resident Evil Village. I don't know if that means what they think it means. I think they know what it means. I'm also... The picture of the the tall lady is definitely... an. Oh, man. There was only like 2.5 seconds of shock when I read that, and I was Mm -hmm. like, yeah, it makes sense. (laughs) Capcom, what are you doing with your life? I, but I can't I wait to play it. giving the people what they yeah. want. We want <laughs> to be stepped on and we want to see some. Um, I don't know about that. Umbrella Corp related pegging. <laughs> you know. This is not where I thought this was going. <laughs> well, hello, hello. <laughs> and welcome to Culture Cryptids. Oh, welcome back to Culture Cryptids, we should say. Yes, we had a little bit of a break, a little bit mm-hmm. of a hiatus. Um, holidays, winter, winter, just hibernation. Kind of, yeah. Hibernation <laughs> definitely happened. Um, it was good. The month off was good. Did, I don't know. What did you do apart from hibernating? I, uh, I hibernated and ate, like <laughs> I ate all of the terrible things for the it's, holidays. They're and, not terrible. They're delicious things for the holidays. Yeah. yeah they're delicious, was, but then you feel awful afterward. <laughs> like my body's not used to all of that sugar oh, anymore. Yeah. 
because I'm I'm of the old mm-hmm. and also of in the better health. And I'm like, mm, sugar, not for me. <laughs> Except yes, for you. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's the problem. <laughs> that's the problem. Yeah, about the same. Um, I started in a really fun new horror video game. I've been playing uh, Song of Horror, which is kind of like a it's an episodic like third person really cinematic horror game where you go through these levels and each of the episodes are kind of based on a classic horror game. Another one that came before it. Um, It's really cool and really fun, except when you kill a character like by stupidity, which, Hey, I'm not good at video games. That character is just dead for the rest of the series. So um, you can never use them again. Oh, wow. Yeah. And then you have to pick a new character to go through and continue the story with that character. It's really fun. But again, I I lost like two characters in like one episode. And I was like, well, but clearly I'm not doing a good job here. And you, you, I need to watch you. You're streaming this. Yeah, right? I'm streaming I need to watch one. you stream this. Yeah. Well, we've taken such a long break. I guess we probably need to do introductions again. I'm JD, one of your co-host for culture cryptids and if i hear anyone say 2021 is gonna be my year i will haunt your dreams like frederick m krueger or as you know him freddy krueger bold of you to assume that you're already not haunting dreams oh don't give away all my secrets (laughs) (laughs) and i'm Corey, your other co-host and i have already broken every single resolution i made this year including the one about not making resolutions because it's yeah it's 2021 we're here yeah it's gonna it's really it's 2020 part two let's just let's just accept <laughs> it's gonna be it. okay it's gonna be okay we're, we're gonna we're gonna get through this that's you know that's where we're at we're gonna get through this we we've made it through january and now we just have to get through you know the other 11 months no pressure. <laughs> no pressure at all. No. But speaking of resolutions, though, mm-hmm. we are very aware that in our last episode, we said that we would be talking about Krampus. Oh, we're going to talk about this. We are going to talk we're about talk Krampus. We're going to talk about broken promises. We- <laughs> <laughs> this is, this, this is was the plan on. all along. <laughs> it wasn't. Um, we're going to do, instead of Christmas in July, we will do Krampus in July. Yes, we will do a fun Krampus-filled episode of Ridiculousness in July. Yeah, so make sure to put your stockings and hats and stuff in a easy to access place to bust them out for the summer. No, I will not. No. No. No, I mean, you should keep those at the ready cuz you're definitely not going to need sunglasses or shorts cuz we're not going to be outside. Okay, okay. No, a little whoa, whoa, whoa. I need you to pull back on the nihilism <laughs> because it's February and we have 11 more months. <laughs> it's not where I was going. Because it's February, and that means it's Valentine's Day. Yes, it is the month of love. Ish. <laughs> love. Ish. Ish. Yeah. And I mean, if if you were expecting us to take this February to talk about all those wonderful, loving emotions and these good feelings, then you just don't know what kind of podcast this is. Yeah. It's not, I'm in the mood for love. It's more, I'm in the mood for blood. That was not bad. Yeah. As far as dad jokes go. You've got the dad jokes. (laughs) I'm a daddy. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. You can tell that we have not done this in a while. (laughs) I hope you're just soaking it all up. Um, Well, talking about things that are love 
adjacent. Mm-hmm. We thought breakups would be a good place to start. Everybody always talks about the romantic films, but let's let's talk about the one it all goes wrong. Yeah. And we kind of want to talk about this, obviously, because Valentine's Day. But also, we're not talking about the films where you have, you know, characters that are in bad love situations or anything like that. Like, no, we want to talk about the ones that are the breakups in the thick of it, in the middle of it, nothing before, nothing after just like the storm itself. Because that's the beautiful thing about horror is that you can find horror movies for any occasion, any occasion, any emotion, any holiday. It seems anything. (laughs) There's there's literally a horror movie. for it. (laughs) So whether you're having a great February or you maybe are a little bit like, you know, not feeling the season. We thought this would be a really great opportunity to explore some of our favorite breakup horror movies. Yeah. Yeah. Where do you want to get started? Well, we have so many to talk about. I mean, really there's only one place we're going to take it back and we're going to start with one of the great masters of horror. I know where you're going with this. Yeah, do you? Yeah. Mm-hmm. We're going to 1979, aren't we? Mm-hmm, we are. We're going to The Brood. That's right. The Brood. By none other than... David Cronenberg? Yeah. That's right. <laughs> it's about to get Cronenberg-esque oh. in here. <laughs> <laughs> is it ever anything but that? No. no That's right. No, it is always terrible body <laughs> horror is how all of life is. It's true. The Brood is a 1979 horror film that was both written and directed by David Cronenberg, who is most probably well-known outside of horror circles for The Fly. Yes, that is the Jeff Goldblum and Gina Davis version of that film. He's also done wonderful films like Shivers, Rabid, and Existence, which is a kind of later film. And then in his later work, he's moved on to do what Eastern Promises. Like, he's... Got a great cinematography. Yeah, it, it, it runs the gamut mm-hmm. of like all of the material that he covers. I just keep going back to like the existence one and how I just refuse to see it because it has a Z in the title. <laughs> it does have a Z in the title. And I keep telling you, <laughs> as someone who has seen this movie and really appreciates it, don't let the Z in the title really like ruin it for you. Well, I think it was the Z and the Jude Law. I think that that's why I was like, mm. I see the Jude Law thing I don't get because it's Jude Law. Yeah, yeah, that's, it's Jude Law. Yeah, <laughs> I I feel like you and I have very different opinions on that, but that's fine. Yeah. We don't have time to unpack that here. No. Let's, <laughs> let's stick with the story. So from the well-loved resource that I adore, IMDb. We only use <laughs> film descriptions from IMDb because JD refuses to do anything else. The Brood from IMDb, a man tries to uncover an unconventional psychologist therapy techniques on his institutionalized wife amidst a series of brutal murders. And that's a really interesting description because I think it tells you a little bit, but it doesn't, I don't know, it doesn't really get to the meat of the story at all. I'm glad it doesn't give a whole lot of, whole, whole, whole lot away, a whole lot away. <laughs> I mean, Cronenberg has called this film the most classic horror film I've ever made. So that's kind of been his description of the film and it does take place in the middle of a particularly difficult divorce between two characters and which is interesting because it came out the same year and like almost concurrently with Kramer versus Kramer and it's kind of like 
This is the horror version of that movie, if you've ever seen Kramer versus Kramer. So let's just sort of jump into it. Yeah. So just kind of to give a little bit more information about what the movie is about, you know, we have this man who, who his wife is at this kind of like center retreat for this new age type technique in psychology and all of these really crazy things like brutal, like brutal murders and stuff mm -hmm. um, start happening that are all adjacent to him mm -hmm. and the people in his life. Yeah, it's so the, this, the plot is this story between this couple Frank, who is kind of the main character, and we are taken through things from Frank's point of view throughout the story mostly. And he and his ex or estranged wife, Nola, Nola, they are at the end of this relationship. It is over. They are kind of like picking up the pieces afterwards. And Nola is spending all of her time in this retreat with this Dr. Raglan, who's played by Oliver Reed, of all things. <laughs> and he is a psychotherapist uh, treating Nola after her divorce and kind of diving into his own technique called uh, psychoplasmics, which are kind of like allowing you to visualize and live in whatever emotion you're having. And it clearly is based off a lot of, as you said, the new age kind of things happening at the time. But in the middle of this, Nola and Frank are also in this kind of custody battle for their daughter. They have a very young daughter. So you get this kind of point of view of this beleaguered husband and father kind of fighting to be close to his daughter. And the whole kind of movie kicks off when he notices it's it's a bite mark, right? Like she, she has like wounds there, there's, on yeah, the daughter. The, the, yeah. The six year old daughter has a wound on her that is unexplained. And then he is like, that's this is it. I'm getting full custody, but which when you think about the time it being in the seventies mm -hmm. for a father to get yes. full custody would have been yes. unheard of. There would have to be really extenuating circumstances for that to happen. But both his daughter and the ex-wife both say, no, it wasn't me. Like, I don't know where it came from. So you kind of have that undercurrent of when all of this violence starts to break out around them. And one of the things about this, even if you're describing it, you're just like, what, is this movie because it's half like psychological horror drama and like really half grindhouse film. <laughs> yeah. It sets like the foundation for it is very much like it's going to be this kind of more internal thing with like possible, uh, you know, abuse and everything. Mm -hmm. And then it just goes way into like off the deep end into another direction. But like you should kind of feel that coming because the character of Dr. Raglan is played so well because in watching it, I'm like, I can't take this guy seriously at all. <laughs> he is the epitome of those type of like self-help gurus that mm -hmm. were very prominent then. This movie does, I think, a great job of kind of lampooning that self-help culture that was just huge at the time. Right. It, it does. And because like the 70s were kind of the golden age of the self-help boom. Like you, you have a bunch of people that were openly taking advantage of others by leading them down this path of like self-actualization without any credentials and without any way of really like no repercussions, no oversight on any of this stuff. So you see a lot of that in the seventies. If you look at books published in the time, like there was this, there's this giant boom of just self-help books. That's when that became a thing. It was no longer, maybe you should see it like a, a therapist and talk it over. Oh no. Like she goes straight into this retreat with a bunch of other inpatient patients and is staying there full time and is unable to see. She doesn't see anybody outside of her daughter and the doctor. Like that's pretty much the only two people she sees. So of course, like 
I mean, even the name of what was the name of his therapy again? Um, um, the name is something incredibly new agey. It's new agey, but also like seeing it because it's like it's on the side of the bus is the first time we see it whenever mm-hmm. people are leaving the center. Um, seeing him do like kind of a session of the treatment and even just seeing the name of it and then hearing it. I'm like, I love that this sounds Soma Free Institute, Soma Free Institute of Psycho. Was it Psychopla? It's psychoplasmics. Psychoplasmics. I always get it right. Psychoplasmics. psychoplasmics. Like, like that full name. I'm like, not only does that sound new agey, but it sounds horror. That sounds horror. Yeah. (laughs) Just the name of it. It it definitely (laughs) does in a lot of ways. The whole story, just as it unravels to these, because you cut between Nola having these really intense therapy treatments where the doctor takes on the role of whoever he's talking with her about. And you kind of undergo this idea of all of the, mistreatment and trauma in her past because like she was basically physically abused by her mother and her father and it kind of goes in and then juxtaposed with really really sort of surprising like these brutal murders that are happening to the people that she's talking about and so at first you're thinking like oh well maybe it's nola doing this and then it becomes quite obvious that no the ex-wife is not the murderer no it it, (laughs) yeah it's like oh maybe this is kind of like some sort of weird like psychic type thing Mm -mm. um and in a way i guess maybe yeah just i mean and like, it's that to like the extreme, yeah. the most extreme, because because when it we also think that at for a certain point, we as the audience think that it, it might be the little girl. Yeah, it might be the daughter, might be the daughter yeah. that's doing these things, too. And no, because <laughs> what you find out is the tiny creatures in giant, brightly colored snowsuits are actually the ones. <laughs> and you're like, wait, what? Because these happen in broad daylight outside. And there's these. Oh, the school one. The school, the school one, one yeah. is like, but like all of them are happening <laughs> in bright daylight, but they're all like dressed in these really brightly colored snowsuits that show up and and are leading these attacks. And you're like, what in the world is happening? Why are these equivalents of you know small children murdering people? And then you see one of their face, and you're like, hang on, this has taken a turn. It, it is worth noting that this movie does take place in Canada. <laughs> yes, because there are certain things about it that I'm like, these are very Canadian sensibilities as far as <laughs> what we're seeing. <laughs> very, very true. Everyone, I think we'll just say like, like, oh, like, why is that like that? Oh, it's Canada. It's Canada. It's Canada. Well, I think a lot of it is, is this kind of the 70s detachment to kind of the situation around it that all of the characters seem to have where they're like, oh, they're dead. Oh, oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. The, again, I go back to the, like the school one was the mm-hmm. one that just like, I was dying laughing because of just how ridiculous I'm like, why this is obviously these things have really scary faces. Mm-hmm. Um, they are actively hurting the they, teacher. They and have the kid, wandered into a classroom and to the murder kids the are teacher. Just like, la, la, la. They could care less <laughs> until it gets like real brutal. Yeah. It's, <laughs> I mean, but that's the thing. Like, it's just on the edge of Grindhouse where these things happen and they're just happening because it's a Grindhouse movie. And then you have, like, Cronenberg, like, coming in. And I don't want to use the term elevated because I hate the term elevated horror for a lot of reasons. But he makes this Grindhouse movie into, like, a deeper look because you can tell that this is very personal for him, which reasons we'll get into (laughs) afterwards. But so, like, it's this weird exploration of both the 70s, like, self-help boom with this mad doctor, quote-unquote, uh, taking advantage of patients for his own goals and for his own kind of science. And what he's doing is not very scientific, but also this idea of this this man like struggling to save his daughter and his family from his estranged wife. So the story is, it's just wild and weird because 
the the titular brood are actually it's hard to like i don't i'm gonna say this and it's the only way i've come to describe what it is is like they are a physical manifestation of the psychoplasmic treatment from the wife's rage basically they're rage babies that she has asexually reproduced so like, we, we get the description that like they say earlier than we see it, that these are the children of her rage. Like, all right. Okay, yeah. cool, cool. There's like a whole dorm full. Of, there are a lot of them. There are a lot. At of first them. we think that there's just the one and they're mm-hmm. like, okay, there's a couple more. And it's like, no, nope. this is a dormitory. They have, full. A, they have a bunkhouse, they have a bunkhouse, <laughs> a bunkhouse <laughs> of a little toe headed, weirdly disfigured battery sack. Things. Yeah. Battery sack babies. <laughs> But yeah, the, but then when we see her actually just well, kind of open her robe the, and we see we see one of them on her. The the ending of the film obviously is is Frank who has gone through watching these people kind of get murdered and is kind of investigating these things on his own comes to this conclusion that like his daughter is basically kidnapped and he goes to the treatment center to get his daughter back from his ex-wife and realizes from the doctor, he's like, oh yeah, no, she doesn't even know this is happening. She has no idea. And it's like, wait, what are you doing, doctor man? Like, <laughs> You know this is happening. She doesn't know these things exist, but you are keeping them in a bunkhouse. Adjacent to her. Adjacent to her. Okay, sure. So then they make this like weird decision where he is going to go in to talk to the ex-wife, which can only end just wonderfully let me tell you and the doctor will go in and and rescue his daughter who is staying in the bunkhouse of the rage babies and here's another thing that gets me this child their their child together just is like yeah my mom has rage babies whatever Every I, I feel like to a certain point, like we like you said before, everyone is just so unaffected by a, a lot of things happening. But like that is the pinnacle of it is that she's just like in this whole bunkhouse dormitory full of these things, just like, eh. yeah, 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 it's it's wild. And <laughs> but he is he is distracting Nola while the doctor is saving saving the daughter. the daughter. But of course, that goes badly because she, as, she, as you said, she she opens up her robe and she's having this moment where she's like, you don't love me. We're done. And he's like, Oh no, I do. And it's all fake of course, because he's finished this relationship. And then it's just to throw her off long enough to disrupt that connection that she has with the rage baby, the, the, the brood themselves. <laughs> the brood. Yeah. And then she opens her robe and you see this sack growing on her. And again, Cronenberg esque is, is a phrase that is used to describe these things because there's no other way to describe the kind of body horror that he does. Body horror is not sufficient. Like that is not a sufficient word for what this, like the specialized version <laughs> that you see in his films. It's, it's very true. Yes. But I was like going into it. I'm like, Oh, it's Cronenberg. There's going to yeah. be body horror. And then like, we get that little bit in the middle of like the guy who um, has like the growth caused mm-hmm. by the psychoplasmics. Yeah. Um, and I was like, eh, there's gotta be more than that. That can't be it. And then we get this part of the end and I was a little let down. Well, you have to remember <laughs> this is early Cronenberg. Yeah. He'd only made like one or two films before this. This is the one that kind of got him out of making the grindhouse into actually kind of making the kind of horror films that he wanted to make. But you're, I mean, yeah, you're right. It was very mild. It was very mild because as I discovered and we discussed, I was like, I think good body horror has to be wet. (laughs) It's gotta be too dry for you. It's too dry. Body horror. It was too dry in this movie. (laughs) I need it to look slimy and squishy and make like noises. 
that was an incredibly descriptive noise that you just made and I don't like it. I just want you to know I did not enjoy that. But body horror needs to be wet to be good, to be okay. really good, not, okay. not, to be really good. Sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, but it goes to say that the special effects from this film were done by Rick Baker, who also uh, was American Werewolf in London. He worked on Star Wars. He worked on later Cronenberg films like Videodrome. And then he also did stuff like Gremlins 2. Also, a very both of those are very wet movies. I would say very wet. Very wet. <laughs> Gremlins are very wet. <laughs> and also Batman Forever. No, yeah, Batman Forever, I think, was the one that he worked on. He worked on one of the Batman films. I could be wrong about which one he did special effects for. Not so wet. Not so wet. No. I don't know. Wait, Gotham City is always raining. It is. It's always raining. That's fair. Yeah. Also wet. (laughs) Well, yeah, the special effects, but they're really well done. Again, considering the budget for this film that you have. And it doesn't like, and that's the thing is like, I can see why the decision was made not to go overboard with it because it doesn't detract from the main messaging of the movie Mm -hmm. either, or it doesn't detract from that moment. Right. That moment where everything kind of goes sideways. Because Nola, like that is a performance yes Yes. it is yeah Yeah. the the actress samantha egger was her name she uh definitely does a fantastic job of being kind of wide-eyed it's the eyes it's It's the the eyes eyes. (laughs) she does it really well she's a little wide-eyed a little dazed throughout the entire film in a way that lets you know that you'd and that's the thing that i like about this film is that you don't know what their relationship was before this point you have no context, no nothing, kind of really, other than it went bad. Yeah, we're coming into it at the this at the is, very end. This is yeah. the very end. Mm-hmm. It's over. It's done with. Um, Though this you can is the tell aftermath. He, he like you said, he's trying to hold it together, and you can almost feel from him that he thinks that there's a way to possibly salvage something from this. Yeah maybe but then he also has like the scene with the, the teacher, teacher. Yeah. he invites his daughter's teacher over to hang out one night that felt really out of left field for me that was a little off um which of course is doesn't go well for the teacher but you kind of have this impression of he's not really sure what he wants and and that's interesting because i mean i guess we should talk about the ending so if you haven't seen the brood there will be obviously this this has, episode has a few spoilers for it, but this movie has been out since it 1979, came out in 1979. So I think we're <laughs> fair to talk about it. And before we talk about the ending, because I think the ending really ties to this, is let's talk about where Cronenberg was coming from when he made this film. Yeah, I mean, he was he wrote this following a hugely ugly divorce and custody battle. Yes, it was a ve- by by his own accounts, it was a very nasty divorce, very nasty custody battle where he was fighting to get custody of his daughter who I think was in another country. I think one of them was in America, one of them was Canada, and I think that they're based on some things that I've been able to find about the making of The Brood, there may have been a, a tip of her living kind of a free hippie-ish sort of existence at that point too. So there's a lot of that going on in this film. And he specifically hired actors and actresses that he thought could portray he and his ex-wife. Well, Oh, he has, he he has said that Nola has characteristics of his ex-wife. This is is definitely a very personal project for him. So the whole film is kind of him working through his divorce, which I think is interesting because you always talk about how filmmakers put themselves in their films. And I think this is one of the like best examples we have of this in this genre specifically, which is interesting. Knowing that you get to the very end scene where he and Nola are having this heart to heart conversation where he starts by saying, no, I love you. And then it turns into them fighting over 
the safety of the daughter because Nola says something to the effect of, if you take her from me, you can't have her either. And at that point, of course, it excites the brood who are start attempting to attack the daughter. At this point, they've left her kind of alone. They don't really, they've never really actively like hurt her, hurt her apart from the beginning when it talks about perhaps bite marks on her or some sort of damage, which is serious. You know, I'm not saying, but, and then at the end this happens. But it's not murder serious. It's not murder serious. In the end, we get to murder serious. And he has to strangle her. (laughs) Yeah. That's um that's how it goes. Yeah, and I think if not having grown up in this way, we were we had friends that we were adjacent to it enough as far as like divorce situations that I mean this is extreme, but these type of feelings and that rage and everything are very almost present in every situation like this. And you're not actively gonna kill somebody, but there are times when you're like, I could murder this person. I'm so angry. <laughs> and the whole, like, I, if you're going to take my child away, then nobody can have them. That seems extreme. But I think that that is a feeling that a lot of people in that situation could relate to as well. That's a feeling that, and unfortunately that's something that happens is that yeah. in, in a lot of contexts and you see a lot in like criminal cases and there are instances where parents have felt this way and done horrible things to their family and to themselves because of it. But in this case, it is a lot of like Cronenberg working out his feelings about his ex-wife and his family in a really extreme way. But then you get tied into, well, that's art for you is working through these extreme emotions Mm -hmm. in a productive way. Because we're we're obviously meant to sympathize with Frank in the movie. That's he's our point of view character supposed to feel really bad for him. And his kind of resentment and confusion in the aftermath of this really messy divorce. I mean, he's taken and pulled through it through this entire movie. Mm-hmm. But I think that it is the whole end of it with the, just him and Nola together and that mm-hmm. whole exchange. I mean, obviously, I feel bad for her, too. She is unfortunately been pulled into this situation by this doctor mm-hmm. and of a lot of what's going on. She probably is not fully comprehending either. I mean, I do. Yeah, I feel for her to a certain degree, too. No, I think I think the film goes you can out feel of, for both of yeah, them. Yeah, you feel for both of them because I think the film goes out of its way. And that's something that I will say that it goes out of its way to show you that she is a perpetrator of this, but also a victim because she's like an abuse and victim in her own it's a early life. And yeah. it's a cycle that she's perpetuating in also her being kind of seduced in a way by the doctor who obviously it's very obvious in the course of the film that he has feelings for her and wants basically wants her to forget about her ex-husband and forget about reconciling with him and come be with him. So there's that level of manipulation going on beneath the surface as well. And the film goes out of its way to tell you these things, but then it also, it also doesn't let you give you a clear villain apart from exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And it, and going back to like, it, you know, showing the cycle mm-hmm. of what's happened, it ends, it ends in that way too. Cause we get the story from Nola's mother about the marks that she would have yes. that, that all of a sudden just went away. Mm-hmm. And then we see the daughter has those at the very end. Yeah, yeah. And that's kind of the idea of the cycle could continue depending upon how the situation goes later in life. Cause that child is traumatized, very clearly oh, yeah, traumatized yeah. in the, the film. And yeah, she has the same, like, psychosomatic marks on her arm afterwards too. Cause I think that's what I like about this particular movie. Cause it'd be, it's really easy to say, well, 
what a misogynistic film that you have this the main character this guy and it's obviously about how evil his ex-wife is and he ends the film strangling her to death and that's it that is a reading of it that is a very reading of kind of picking up on these ideas but then you kind of look to see nola as a victim as well and i think that really goes a long way to making it more nuanced than a grindhouse film deserves (laughs) To me, it didn't read in that misogynist way at all. Mm -hmm. But I mean, I am a man, so I am going to view things very differently. (laughs) But yeah, again, going back to that last scene of the two of them together, I think where it really hammers at home that, yes, she is a perpetrator of this violence, Mm -hmm. but she is also a victim of it as well. Even the fact that she is wearing this huge flowing white gown Mm -hmm. was a purposeful decision, I feel. Yeah, Yeah, definitely. No, I think there's a lot of it because it kind of – I feel like – Walking away from this film in terms of like a breakup and how bad they are, there's a couple things that kind of stuck out to me is that, again, who who in breakups, everyone likes to see themselves as the main character, you know, in a breakup, every time breakup with someone, you're the main character, you are the person all these things happen to. And the other person is typically seen as as the perpetrator, as the villain in the story. And it's easy, especially when you're able to like that feeds into the way that we tell ourselves are the histories of our relationships and how they kind of change when we're in a relationship versus after a relationship. Because again, we don't have any idea what their relationship was like before Beforehand, the divorce, no, before the yeah. divorce at all. Like the, the, the movie actively does not let us know anything at yeah. all. We get little bits and pieces of like family life beforehand, but mm-hmm. no really in-depth knowledge. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think it plays into the idea that after a breakup, a lot of times this person that you loved, becomes this like unrecognizable monstrous thing to you. And I think that's kind of a common thing we see in a lot of relationships failing. Well, we actively wish for that a lot of times mm-hmm. at the end of a breakup. It's the whole idea of like, I, I wish that I wish that I could make you a stranger again. Yeah. I, I mean mm-hmm. like eternal sun to the spotless, my eternal <laughs> <laughs> that movie always, but like it, it, that's the whole basis of it is being able to forget someone. Mm-hmm. And I mean, there's like, it's a song lyric in a song is that I wish I could turn you back into a stranger after like the end of a relationship. It's a common theme and yeah. we do, it makes it, it's easy for us. We want to make that person monstrous. It makes us easy makes it easy for us to have that disconnect. Yeah, absolutely. It does. And I think this film kind of plays with that a lot. Like, I think that's kind of what Cronenberg is doing a lot where it's a lot easier to paint your ex as a, as a bad person um, because they did these things to me without maybe seeing, without maybe being aware of perhaps the bigger picture of all the factors that played into it. Like all of the, all of the faults that everyone, all the faults that everyone has. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, I, I like the film for that. Like, I don't think this is Cronenberg's best film or his strongest film, but it's it's an interesting one. Yes. And it's a good exploration of this particular theme. Yes. For sure. Because you don't you don't get a lot of films that take place after after the breakup. You know, it usually get them that in, you know, either watch somebody break up or movies that are like, oh, you've moved on after a breakup, but not in the when things are still this messy. Yeah. The, this very long protracted. Oh yeah. Period. Oh yeah. yeah. This is definitely the aftermath of it. So if your if your rage <laughs> was a child, what would it look like? <sighs> okay. <laughs> Have you ever seen the movie, the gate? 
Yes. Okay. You know, those little like the stop motion creatures that just get up and smash things like it would definitely be one of those stop motion creatures from that 80s movie. The okay. game. Yeah. And they would just like and it would be to like 80s like metal music, too. That's how they would operate is they would go around and like they would just break things like just in the corner, just breaking things. Yeah. Yeah. That checks out. Yeah. Doesn't yeah. it? I think for me, if um, if my rage for a child. <laughs> okay. It's funny, I think, that you said something like stop motion, because in my head, I'm also I'm like, I'm actually thinking ventriloquist dummy. <laughs> okay. But a ventriloquist dummy that looks like some sort of cross between, like, Liberace and a raver kid from, like, the late 90s with so an attitude all, to match. All the candy, they'd be wearing their candy and, like, their God. Okay. That's what my rage would look like. Gay rage. Gay rage. Sure. You had to put Liberace in there to be gay rage. No, mine would be like. It paints a picture though, doesn't it? Mine would be tiny. Like the little like tiny guy. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's like ventriloquist. Like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're children. Obviously, we're going to children. Pers- yeah. But tiny. mine would be like real Super little tiny. and just yeah. be break. Like they climb on top of things and like just break them. That's, yeah. that's what it But I want mine to be unsettling looking to like a dummy. Like Night of the Living, living Dummy type situation. Wow, you just referenced Goosebumps over here. <laughs> <laughs> it's a horror podcast. Why wouldn't I? Sure, sure. That checks out. Like, I'm not even the least bit surprised in that, that your, your rage baby would be as gay as you are. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know how to respond to that. <laughs> I am my rage baby sometimes. <laughs> Well, I I think moving forward and looking into another aspect of breakups, uh, I think a good film that we both really enjoy. And there may be some arguments on whether this qualifies as horror or, or if it doesn't, but um, Life After Beth. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Life After Beth. First of all, let's say this, this is the reason that like, it's the reason that Aubrey Plaza should do more horror films. Right here. She should do them. Absolutely. Because I I love this film. And this is my turn to take it from the IMDb description. If you haven't seen Life After Beth, it came out in 2014. And here's the description. A young man's recently deceased girlfriend mysteriously returns from the dead, but he slowly realizes she is not the way he remembered her. I love this film. It is written and directed by Jeff Bonna who was the co-writer of I Heart Huckabees, which I didn't know until I looked into it. Oh, I didn't know that either. And I love yeah. that movie. A lot of people hate it. I love it. Well, a lot. Of, this is, I think Life After Beth is really kind of polarizing in that way, too. A lot of people didn't enjoy this, especially when it came out. Critics hated it. But he also did The Little Hours in 2017 about the, the nuns, which also had Aubrey Plaza in it. And, Another fantastic film. And then he was wrote and directed Horse Girl, the Alison Brie movie. I, I, I like that in, um, in that Wes Anderson way, he has a stable of people that he likes to pull from to do these movies. So I haven't I haven't seen Horse Girl, but I've heard it's really good. But have you seen that one? No, no. Okay. Watching the trailer for it and then like Life After Beth. And then also, I guess, to a certain degree, The Little Hours, like um, there's always like a somewhat unsettling element. Yeah, it, it seems very unsettling. So I'd really like to watch Horse Girl. It's going to be on my list knowing that he did it now. This was his first feature film that he ever made, and I think there's just there's a lot in it. An like, A24 film as well, I think is worth mentioning. Yes, yes, you and your A24. I love, I have yet to see an A, like, I've not seen them all, obviously, but I've yet to see an A24 film that I did not like. Oh, they're out there. You just yeah. gotta, you just gotta keep looking for them. <laughs> they're, they're there, that you just don't hear about them, that's the thing. 
I think one of the things to establish right off the bat with this movie mm-hmm. is that it is not a Zom rom com. It is not. <laughs> and I understand why marketing like marketed it as that, but it is not a zombie rom com. This is not a romantic. Thank you for say- thank you for saying the full thing in case anybody yeah, did not know not what a Zom rom com was. This is not a romantic comedy. <laughs> no. And I think a lot of people when they see the film mistake it as that originally. And I'm not sure if that's why it got such low scores at the beginning because this, this movie is funny it's funny but and it's, it has a huge amount of talent in yeah, it too it's darkly funny though like there's a lot of things going on in it so and again the talent is yeah. great we've got molly shannon yes we've got john c Riley. Mm-hmm. we've got paul reiser mm-hmm. aubrey plaza mm-hmm. um and if you know, like to, anna kendrick yeah if you like okay to give you some background like obviously like most people know who aubrey plaza is but you don't if you don't she's Parks and Rec. Yes. Like she's well known, most best known for Parks and Rec and also a really great film called Ingrid Goes West. Ingrid Goes West. Which has its own little bit of like horror oh, elements to so it to good. a certain degree. That movie is so good. Um, a movie that makes you uncomfortable to that, to that degree is a good film. It is. Yeah. Yeah. But go on with the cast. Yeah. Uh, I mean, obviously Anna Kendrick, um, mm-hmm. Pitch Perfect, lots of, uh, I mean, you know, she's every, uh, the darling, a little darling that everyone loves. Mm-hmm. Molly Shannon of SNL fame, John C. Riley, who is, I, you, do, do I have to mention things he's been? Because I'm going to say Dr. Steve Brule is what I'm going <laughs> to reference him from like the Tim and Eric stuff. Okay. Yeah. The Between Two Ferns. <laughs> he's in like every Will Ferrell movie ever. Um, and also I, he's really good in, in Chicago. Okay. Yeah. And then of course, Paul Reiser. Yeah. Mad about you. Paul Reiser. Yeah. But also the, the main character is Dane DeHaan from Chronicle and also the amazing Spider-Man. Like, that's what I'm, I'm like. He, yeah. Spider-Man. Yeah. That's what I Spider-Man. always think of Spider-Man. Yeah. I always think of Chronicle because I, I do actually really enjoy Chronicle, but that is another story for another time. And then Dane DeHaan's brother is Kyle is played by Matthew Greg Goobler from like Criminal Minds. So, and he's every- also somebody that's in a lot of other things. Yeah. You've, you've seen him you've in seen places. Him, yeah. You've seen him places. Yeah. The whole cast is phenomenal. And in this whole story, like as the story begins, like you pick up with this obviously grieving character, it's Dane DeHaan, Zach, whose girlfriend has just died. Like you are at her funeral in the couple opening minutes of the film. So it's not a big spoiler. And this is such a good movie about grief and a breakup that has just happen when everything is really fresh yeah it because I, one of the things i like is that yeah it opens and we are, we are at her funeral it, mm-hmm. it's just happened but the period from then until when beth shows back up mm-hmm. it could be any amount of time like yeah it, it's just kind of like he's languishing with mm-hmm. this um and i like that it, it we don't know exactly how long it's been because it could have been a couple of days yeah after this since this happened it could have been weeks mm-hmm. and i think that obviously was a very active choice in it, the movie it definitely was it and then he comes to a realization that beth is still alive quote-unquote alive and that she also has no sense of that anything has ever happened like she no sense of breakup, mm-hmm. no sense of dying. Right. Yeah. Cause the important thing is to know is that when the film picks up, you don't realize that they just, they broke up just before she died and she dies on a hiking accident. She's bitten by a snake and she dies from a snake bite and she's hiking alone. And you don't realize that they've just broken up and that comes out in dialogue. And it's almost one of those blink and you miss it moments when he realizes she's still alive and he's just upset with her and be like, you said we should see other people. And like, is this what you like? Blah, blah, blah. And it's like, wait, what? So she was your ex-girlfriend when she died. 
So there's this idea of like he's caught in this the undead relationship, as I like to say, like the kind of aftermath of it where you don't know how to feel in that time because you're grieving. Like you really are grieving. It's its own form of grief. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, like it, I think it does a really good job of using like the zombie, the, like zombie as a metaphor for just kind of like that torpor that you're in mm-hmm. of a relationship that you just can't let go of. And also this like kind of when you know that it's, you know that it's done and you know, you should move on, but for something then to come along and be like, Oh, I have a second chance. Yeah. And you glom onto it. Like not just him, but also like obviously her parents see this as some sort of like miracle as well. And it turns out it, it is not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like she's miraculously like miraculously alive. And when he finds her again and then they just, they pick up like nothing ever happened because he doesn't have to face the breakup and he does. Well, he's enabled to a certain degree, but then he, he's like, Oh yeah, this is great. Yeah. This is great at the beginning. And then, and then as obviously as time goes on, she is in fact a zombie and these zombie traits become more overt as the film progresses. It's a great little journey that it takes you on because you have these, like her parents are so trapped in this. No, this is fine. This is fine. And he begins to see the kind of the cracks in the curtain of Beth isn't acting like herself. And Aubrey Plaza is so good. Like she steals every scene she's in as this, the undead girlfriend who literally like crawls out of her own grave and shows up at home and has no idea anything has happened. And it's just like, Oh yeah. Like in kind of reliving almost the same day, like over and over again for her. I got to stay for the test tomorrow. The test tomorrow. Yeah. (laughs) She's reliving the same day, like every day. And he isn't. So it's a great kind of way to be like, oh, no, you can be in this relationship limbo or you can claw your way out of it. And that's where I think the film is so brilliant because it's this aftermath of a relationship. And it's it is a highlight of all of the horribly embarrassing, toxic behavior that you engage in after a relationship. And I say you, but like everybody kind of (laughs) does these really terrible moments, even if you only do them in your own brain. But here they are, like for all to see that zach is doing when he's like with beth oh it's painful yeah. at, at times it's it's painful to to watch the things that he is kind of rationalizing in his head and like the mm-hmm. and the behaviors and it makes certain other things that happen so much more jarring like whenever he runs into anna kendrick's mm-hmm. uh, character um in the diner and like what is he? he's like oh you smell like you yeah. you, you, you smell good yeah like, you, oh, like you don't smell dead you don't smell dead uh, can i touch your skin yeah, yeah. <laughs> well all those things are like and it's a great way because it's just kind of dropped in there because he meets he runs into a childhood friend of his and their parents are friends and they have like kind of breakfast i think it is and they're just kind of like kind of hanging out and having a real like leisurely and it's nothing even romantic but he's just like it's that moment where you're just like oh wow this is something new and it's really cleverly put on the page like oh you you smell good and it's like oh you don't smell this is something new and it's not dead it's not dead yeah (laughs) but it's not it's also not like tempered by the past like it's something you know it's like oh wow you start to see maybe that the it shows the cracks in the old relationship maybe didn't always smell like roses and this new possibility of things happening. And she's not even really flirting with, like I should point out, like she's just like, Oh yeah. Catching up. Like I said, it's really jarring because it it, it is. I'm like, where is this coming from? Where, (laughs) where is this behavior from him coming from? And then the interaction between when Beth shows up and Mm -hmm. that is a really good way to, I think highlight a lot of the kind of jealousy and aggression that can come in even after a Mm -hmm. relationship when you're like, 
they shouldn't have moved on yet. Yeah. No. What are you doing? What are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> How dare you? There's, <laughs> and there's so much of that. Like this whole film is just like a breakup, but when you can't let go and you can't let go to things and you can't let yourself move on. And there's some really great moments, both with his, with his family, especially where they are all moving forward with things and kind of encouraging him to do the same. And he is just stuck. Yeah. So it highlights that feelings of like isolation that you have after a breakup when everyone else is able to move on with their lives and be happy. And you just can't be now granted it is like in this case, an actual death, but that the analogy is still there. It still works. Oh no. It's a, it's, I think, I think again, like you said, critics hated this, but I think it's a brilliant way to use zombies to explore a lot of different things. I think like the kind of the aggression that you have because he like, you know, with kind of reliving the same day, mm-hmm. he's going through all the greatest hits of the relationship to yes. like the beach and yeah. the, like, the playing um, yeah. the song. And she just gets so angry. <laughs> I'm like, Oh God, I've had that aggression before in a yeah. breakup situation. But, and I think also with his, him healing the relationships that he has like with his family like especially mm-hmm. with his brother yeah. I, I didn't that's something that's unexpected in the movie and it's I, I love that we don't see a lot of like the other kind of zombie, oh, quote unquote zombie apocalypse happening until the very end of right, the movie right because like you you sort of get this idea through the film that there's other things happening and that like but you don't get the full feeling that Beth is not the only person that's returned She's just one of the first that came back. And like, then you kind of come to this head where this, like there's a zombie apocalypse happening around them, a very slow one. And, and as a lot of people are kind of dealing with their own past and their own situations. And I think that's really telling too, because people get so wrapped up in what they're feeling that it's, or in their own grief and all, all these sort of things that it's hard to see the bigger picture. And he just doesn't. And no one else does too for yeah. a long time until that very end there when you realize like, yeah, and you, there's a zombie apocalypse, but you don't, you don't really get an answer as to like why this is happening or how it's happening. It's just happening. It's just happening. And, yeah. and I love the whole, I mean, it makes sense for mm-hmm. dead people or dead things to want to go back to where they lived at. Yeah. But the whole thing about like, Wanting to be in the attic. They like attics. They like attics and like the <laughs> like the mud. Like yeah. you know, kind of like making essentially like kind of like a mud hut in the. But in that's the, the thing. Attic. I was like, yeah, because they don't. Because if you don't realize you're dead, and you but you find that comfort in being like in an enclosed space is yeah. what I'm assuming. But yeah, there's just a couple throwaway lines like they just really like attics. Like, yeah. just, and I love that we don't ever get an explanation. No, we never for get an explanation it. for yeah. it. Well, that's the thing is like you start in a film that is kind of like a a drama, like a family drama, and then you get dropped into the middle of a genre film, and it it just works so well because you're just like, yeah, yeah, the zombie apocalypse. I guess that is kind of like mourning or you know you're mourning the death of a relationship but you're mourning the death of, and then surprise you can't get rid of the feeling so that's the zombie right there and i think the the end of it does a really good job of exploring those things like that we feel responsible for mm-hmm. because you kind of get a feeling that he in some way feels responsible for her death but you don't know that for sure until yeah. like the very end whenever he's trying to kind of get her to an, like another place that kind of um, distract her and it's like oh we'll go hiking and essentially it's like oh but you don't you know you don't like hiking you don't like hiking yeah. it's like oh he was supposed to be with her on that hike and he yeah. didn't. And, yeah. Oh. There's, there's a lot of like really great kind of poignant moments in that, that are just sort of like, yeah, it's, it's neither like, cause neither of them can move on beyond their relationship. Like obviously she keeps, they keep living the same day. They keep, like, she has a very valid reason for not being very, able to move. Yeah, on. Yeah. This movie is like, 
this film is so intentionally cringy and there's so many intentionally like intentionally like cringy moments with Zach and Beth and like the family and how they're just like, Oh no, if everything will be fine, if we just pretend it's fine. And like, it's clearly not fine. One thing I have to say that I loved about the story is like, did you notice the subversion of the magical black person trope that they dropped in there? Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean like, and we don't have to go into details about it, but it was so well done because it was like, this is, this is clearly what it is. And they like, cause they go back on the whole, like, Oh, like they have to have the, the, the magical like person of color who comes in and is like the reason for things or something like that. And they just, God, that seems so good. <laughs> it's, it, no, it, it, it's great. Yeah. <laughs> cause it faces it head on. It does. Like, yeah. It's like, Oh, you were expecting this to be a thing where you were going to like solve all your problems with the, you know, the, the magical non-white person, but like jokes on you, what are you doing? That's dumb. It was pretty well done. I have to say, I really liked that. I mean, even though it, it's exploring some heavy stuff, it is pretty mm-hmm. light fare until like in rewatching this, I had forgotten the scene when they're on, when he goes, finally goes on the hike with her yeah. and he's saying like having to finally like say goodbye to her. Yeah. That hit me a lot harder than I expected it to even like with a review and cause mainly cause I'd forgotten that it gets that heavy and serious it, at the end. Da- well, I mean, cause it, there's these moments where you're just like, yeah, okay, everything's fine. And then, and then like, she's got a fridge strapped to her back or like the, yeah, she's got the like oven, the, the oven is yeah. strapped to her back or like, it's just a sunburn and it's like, no, your skin or like the whole scene where she gets hit by a car and you're just like, Oh my God. And these, all these movies like kind of, it's such a weird, like very jarring <laughs> when put up against the story, but it, it does work because like Beth, and one of the things I think you said, like, is it Beth's aggression or everything, but like Beth's progression through the film as being, exactly the girl that he remembered, like all the greatest hits of their relationships to slowly progressing to this aggressive, jealous, like toxic that person, decay, the that decay, decay of, mm-hmm. of a relationship. And it, it's, it's literally right there in the film. And it shows you this, like, it's kind of like, it's a really great way of showing how you, after a breakup, like right when the breakup is very fresh, you're only looking at the good moments. You're only looking at those highlights and you're, you know, again, best hits over and over again. But as you put a little space between you and the breakup, you start to see the bad parts too. And I think that's a really, again, a great metaphor for her gradually like sliding into that, the zombie monster that she becomes kind of, but she's still in there, but it, you know, it becomes more of like, it's harder for him to ignore those parts. Yeah. But that like the whole interaction he has with her, like, you know, finally saying goodbye um, mm-hmm. is it, I, I know I like I'm repeating stuff a lot, but it does. It uses this framework to really in a very concrete way to explore these themes mm-hmm. um, like the, the decay and yeah. having to deal with like the ugly side of all of this and then having to finally literally kill it yeah. <laughs> and cut sometimes, it off. Yeah. Sometimes you have to like, you know, you have to, to kill that. You have to kill it. And then as we see in the cemetery afterward, rebury it and put <laughs> like these iron things over. It's just, graves. yeah, it's, it's a really great, like it's a really great exploration of kind of that. And I, I like the movie a lot and I'm a big fan of it. I think it's, it's one of those movies that it's a good to go to. I think if you're in a breakup and you just really need that kind of perspective on what it is. You want to laugh, you want to cry. Yeah. You, know. you want to kind of feel things. Yeah. Um, another note that I found out was we were, I was like doing a little bit of uh, kind of research on the film. Cause there's not a whole lot about it out there, but the director said in an interview that he was like vaguely inspired by the myth of Orpheus. I can see that. Well, you have yeah. the snake bite. You have the idea that, you know, he's this journey to rescue your 
loved one, your revived loved one and like kind of the futility and like the death is permanent and things like that. And I thought that was like a really like nice little poignant. Yeah. On there. Yeah. Huh. Mm hmm. I also want to believe that Aubrey Plaza, a lot of her performance, I want to believe was ad libbed, like, <laughs> yeah, like I, improvised. I don't, I don't like. know. <laughs> it would make sense. Yeah. There's so many good stuff in there. Yeah. I think if you're looking for a movie that is hits you right in the feels for it's okay to not be okay after a breakup, that's the one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. With a little bit of gore. <laughs> Just a smidge. Just a smidge. Just a smidge. Mm-hmm. So there's all kinds of embarrassing stuff, obviously, that Zach does in this movie. Yes, he does so many embarrassing things. What's the most embarrassing thing either you've done or had happened to you in regards to a breakup? Okay, I'm not answering this one first. You get to go first. Okay. (laughs) I don't know if embarrassment is the right word. I mean, it was embarrassing. I mean, you can tell an awkward story, too. Yeah, awkward. Uh, I broke up with someone a little bit before Valentine's Day one year. That shame. It, it, I know that that makes me a terrible person. If I mean, Valentine's like, Day doesn't mean anything, first of all. And uh, apparently my gift had already been purchased by this person. Mm-hmm. And I get a call saying, your gift is waiting for you at your house. So I get home from work and said gift, which was um a book and also um <laughs> a Ryan Gosling coloring book. <laughs> Alrighty then. If this kind of dates the time mm-hmm. period in which this happened, are in my driveway and they are covered in pee. <laughs> oh yeah, someone didn't take that breakup very well at all. No. And I guess Yikes. the um, the most embarrassing part of it was having to clean that up. Yeah, how do you like? Eh, that just not gloves and all kinds of old Target bags. Yeah, yeah. Just, just spray that sucker down. Oh no! Thought that's... it was rain at first, and then it was like, oh no, that is not rain. Oh no! Oh no! <laughs> Oh, oh God. Oh, now, your turn. Oh no. <laughs> okay. I've had like several. Oh, okay. I'll tell an awkward post breakup story. <sighs> so, um, everyone has like an X, like with a capital, like, you know, a mine sent two dozen bright red roses to me on my birthday at my place of employment almost a year after we broke up while he was still dating the girl he had um, cheated on me with. What do you do with that? (laughs) We were no contact. I should point out like no contact. Again, podcasting is not a visual medium. I need everyone to know (laughs) that my eyes are so wide Ah, at this. Oh, Oh yeah. What do you, yeah. What do you do with that? Like, I don't know. Like you, you're dating somebody, sir. This is, um, what do you do with that? You burn it with fire and hope it goes away. <laughs> oh yeah. Like it was incredibly awkward. That's close your bank accounts, move to another city where no one knows your name type material right it was, there. It was so awkward. Cause they were like, my entire workplace was like, Oh, someone has sent you this. And I was like, Oh, that's really weird. Like I'm not like currently seeing anybody. And you know, like you get to the card and you're like, Oh no. Oh no. No. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, that's that trumps mine. Yeah. I mean it's just uh, it's just a lot of awkward. Yeah. 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 In abundance. Yeah. Ooh. It was very uncomfortable. <laughs> and speaking of uncomfortable things, <laughs> let's talk about another oh. breakup. Oh, all right. So we were we were talking about this uh this episode and some things we wanted to do with it. 
there was really only kind of one thing we had settled on at the beginning of this. If we're going to talk about breakups in horror movies, you we could not have left this film out. No, because I love it. You love it. Mm-hmm. A lot of people love it. It's midsummer. It is. It absolutely is. Because really, you can't talk about you can't even talk about breakup movies without talking about this movie. This again, incredibly polarizing film in the horror community. I think a lot of times a lot of people don't like it, but I love it. And of course, you know, we really, really appreciate this movie for what it is. Yeah. I mean, in just the course of a few episodes, we've we've talked about both mm-hmm. Ari Oster yeah, movies. Yeah. So. <laughs> and and I will say, as we talk about this film. There's so much to unpack in this movie and we're obviously not going to talk about everything about this movie. We're kind of really just focusing on the The, breakup, the the breakup breakup part of it. it, Yeah. So there's a lot of things we won't cover. And really what I can tell you to do is that spoiler alert, if you haven't seen this movie, you really should before we get into this, this week's episode or this, this episode. Yeah, a 2019 film, so mm-hmm. you've had some time to watch it. And if you've not, go watch it now if you don't want things spoiled. And yes. also just go watch it because <laughs> it's great. So from IMDb. Your favorite. My favorite. A couple travels to Northern Europe to visit a rural hometown's fabled S- Swedish midsummer festival. What begins as an idyllic retreat quickly devolves into an increasingly violent and bizarre competition at the hands of a pagan cult. There's, that's not how I would describe the film. No, nor would I. I don't know. I don't know who wrote that, but I feel like it's really inaccurate because like if, cause if you were going to describe, you're now film, angering the person who wrote this. on I, IMDb. I mean, I don't mean to, but I don't think I'm it's just, like, it's really accurate at all because it's, that reads a little too wicker man esque for me. It does. Yeah. And this film isn't the least bit wicker man, but that's the thing is like people can like, I, I saw this the week that came out because I was such a mm-hmm. huge fan of hereditary. And that's what I heard people describing. It's like, Oh, it's very much like the wicker man. I'm like in the broadest sense maybe i mean but. it's folk horror yeah like you could use you could use the term folk horror to describe it but that's about uh, it yeah that's about it and most of the horrific elements happen during the daytime which also wicker man is kind of has some of that especially the original i'm i'm talking just about the original i should point out not the nicholas i'm not cage. talking about the nicholas cage one today we're not gonna talk about nick cage um <laughs> although one time we do need to go through our favorite nick cage horror movies because that would be amazing but today is not that day this is i, I think Again, we're focusing on the relationship breakup aspect of this movie. Mm-hmm. And Ari Oster is phenomenal at exploring these kind of relationships, whether mm-hmm. they be romantic or familial, and just kind of the innate horror that's involved in, in those in a way that like I I I feel like both th- this and Hereditary, mm-hmm. I think, are two of the best modern horror films that exist. I think what he's good at is using the genre to tell a story, not just being the genre. The story it's used as a medium to amplify and tell the story as opposed to tacking a story onto just a horror film or a horror horror trope. And again, this is only his second feature film after hereditary. He's announced his third, which is titled, uh, Bo is afraid. We don't know anything about it, but Hey, maybe we'll get it in 2022-ish sometime. It'd be really great to see. More on that as it comes out. But in Midsummer, you have... It's kind of easiest, I think, to talk about Midsummer by talking about the characters and and how they kind of relate to each other. Because I think that's the biggest part of the story is these characters. Everything else is kind of secondary to that. Because, of course, you've got your main character. Which, her name is Danny Arbor. 
who's flit played by Florence Pugh. Yes. Oh, love her. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, because you've seen Little Women, right? Yes. And mm-hmm. that is this movie is intense and heavy. Uh-huh. And she filmed Little Women after this movie mm-hmm. with only two weeks in between them. Yeah. I cannot imagine the emotional whiplash that oh, that no. was. But she has said that she loved d- doing Little Women immediately after this because it was kind of a palate cleanser for it. Let her be able to shake all of it off. Mm-hmm. But yeah, d- d- from the get go, Danny is just having a time of it. Yeah. Um, essentially, her entire family is gone. Yeah. I mean, the film opens with a murder suicide. Yeah. Which is again, not really in a spoiler territory. It sort of sets the scene for it. And in the middle of that, she also has this really crumbling relationship with her boyfriend who, who's Christian Christian's her boyfriend. he's played by Jack Rayner. Who's only really film credit before this is transformers four <laughs> of all movies. And he's great in this. Like, don't get me wrong. Like, I don't want to be like, Oh, you know that this guy, but yeah. And he, and he is an anthropology grad student, which I always kind of laugh at, who decides to go on a trip to Sweden kind of almost to escape this relationship. And then JK, who she's coming along. I should also point about the fact that like I'm laughing about the anthropology grad student because I have been an anthropology grad student. So <laughs> I think everybody everybody knows at least one. Yeah. yeah but so, yeah. So and he's he's such like a, a weak person and the actor who does this does it very well oh. like it's incredibly it's a nuanced performance it's very well done um i hope to see him in more things in the future he does a good job of making you hate christian yeah, yeah. he does because without of, being evil yeah, either <laughs> there's but that's what makes it worse though yeah. is he's not he is it's not actively being aggressive or doing mm-hmm. these like things with malign intent it's the um it's the fact that he is just so kind of whatever yeah. like the, the passive aggressiveness of all yes. of his actions yes. that make it even worse yeah so they go to sweden with his friends and of course you have another anthropology grad student josh who's played by william jackson harper cheaty cheaty from the good place <laughs> we love him <laughs> but he actually is in a really different role here as as kind of like this other academic who really wants to He's going to Sweden to study this culture. He's actually going for yeah. the reason that everyone says they're going, but he is going for that. Yeah. Yeah. But he's also a really great example of, of a bad anthropologist and a mm-hmm. little purposefully, purposefully, yes. who is kind of willing to do a a lot of things to get what he wants or what he needs out of it and kind of cut corners and a stuff. A lot of like non ethical things. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He's a non ethical um anthropology student and and the film is pretty good about kind of nudging you in that direction to understand that. And then of course is their friend, Mark, who's played by Will Poulter, who is in the Maze Runner movies. He is playing a very Will Poulter-esque character. Yes, yes, yeah. he is. He's kind of the, like the, he's the fool yeah. basically. He doesn't take anything seriously. He's kind of just there to have a good time. He's there to rag on Christian for not breaking up with Danny. And he's, yeah, he's just kind of a little bit of a problem. Like he's, he's the, uh, essential American tourist. Oh, I would say yeah, that's a good way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That, that's the kind of role that he plays in there. And then you have Pele who, uh, this is his village. This is his village. Yeah. Like he is their guide. He's the Swede who was in America for school. I think maybe it's kind of unclear as to how exactly they know him, but he's, and he is one of the, the Harga. 
the Herga. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Who I can't know if I don't pronounce things correctly. Again, you guys can yell at me. It's fine. I'm used to it. Um, he's their guide who has basically been on a pilgrimage to kind of to the States and when they meet and then he invites them back for his, this midsummer festival, which there are other people you know, yes. his age from his village that are doing the same thing. Yes. Like they run into these groups of people on their way in. Mm-hmm. They've all been invited to take, take part in this festival. Yeah. I have to say, <laughs> I would be remiss if I didn't. Um, when they first get to right bef- before they get into the village, when they first get there and they all decide like this, which is a terrible idea. Now's a good time to take mushrooms. Yeah. <laughs> this is Ari Oster has obviously done psychedelics before because this is the best representation on film I've ever seen of what it active actually <laughs> looks and feels like to be on a trip, mm-hmm. especially for mushrooms. <laughs> like the breathing, like the tree, like the breathing and all mm-hmm. that. I'm like, I watched it. And I was like, Oh no. Oh no. <laughs> this a is a little too real. For yeah. You. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's an interesting choice, but I guess again, mid twenties college students out for kind of this big hurrah. It makes, it makes sense that like, that's the thing that they would do, but right then and there seems questionable. Yeah. Well, he, you know, we have the character that is the non-ethical, like, you know, like that's a mm-hmm. trope. Yeah. We have this whole kind of cultish thing that could like a festival thing happen, which is a trope. Mm-hmm. The, you know, college age children not being responsible doing drugs trope. There's a lot of well, like um, well tread territory in this mm-hmm. movie, but he uses it in a way that it makes it very fresh and a in a good vehicle. Just like Life After Beth uses, you know, the well tra- well tread territory of zombies to explore those themes. This uses these same tropes mm-hmm. to explore kind of Danny's breakdown yeah. that happens throughout this film. Yeah, because I mean. Really, the film and the aspects that we really want to talk about are that breakup that happens. Because when the film opens, you have a character who is obviously in the middle of a breakdown. And then you have her her significant other who is not supportive of that, not supportive of what she needs to get through it. And you can there's that whole conversation in the bar that happens before the trip. And there, there's a couple of things on this. Like there are a couple interpretations for Christian. And I have heard people defend him oh no he's not gaslighting her you can so this is yeah at the begin very beginning of the movie i can almost feel for him in the sense that he is getting to the point where he is ready to end this Mm -hmm. and then this horrific event happens and he feels trapped in a way and it's like i can understand that but it's all of his behavior afterward that i'm like you are a piece of shit (laughs) but even from the beginning when they're like just break up with her you know you want to and his response is what if I want her back? Oh yeah, that's awful. That, I mean, yeah, and but that's such a that's such a thing that I think a lot of people. I didn't say I, I agree okay, with yeah. him. I said I could I can understand I can feel for him. You can, I can feel empathize for him for, a little bit. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's that's one of those things where it's like, what if I what if I want him back? What if I want this person back? If I break up with them, then I've made a mistake. But that's such a horrible thing to think, and so many people think about it in relationships when they're about to end it. Like, well, you know, what if? And it's like, well, if you're already thinking about ending it, then like do it. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're done. You should just ex- acknowledge that you're done and everybody can move on with that. But then, yeah, she has this terrible thing happen to her. where Her family is dead and then he stays. But he also plans his trip without her. Like with the was the expectation that they were already going to be broken up by the time that summer rolled around. What was it? See, yeah, either way you look at it is it does not paint him in a good light. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. And this like. Midsummer is a, a relationship breaking down in front of you. Like we are right in the middle of this. This isn't 
in the other two films, we're, we're talking about the aftermath of a breakup. Midsummer is the breakup. And here it is. It's ugly and nasty. And everybody gets hurt in it. But that's the thing, though, because he even like he even makes it her fault that he didn't tell her about the trip. There's so many things that he does that are very like he's he's like textbook gaslighty. Yeah. <laughs> in a way we're like, oh, well, like in the, in the fact that like he's like, what? You know, you just didn't. Why did I told you I might go? And she's like, well, you didn't tell me you were going. He's like, oh, and he makes a bunch of excuses. And it's just like he makes her kind of apologize when he gets mad that she questioned him. Yeah. This is another film where there are multiple scenes and interactions between these characters that are uncomfortable yeah. to watch it, because we've all been in those situations before. Like it's, that's what makes it so uncomfortable is that like some, so much of this shit is relatable. AF. Yeah. yeah. And the fact that like when she's like upset and he's just like, yeah, you should just go off on your own. Yeah. You should totally, who, who tells their significant other, like while they're on, shrooms to just to go wander yeah you're fine by yourself like go have your panic attack where i can't see you because then i don't have to think about it it's awful yeah it's really terrible (laughs) as somebody who has done those drugs before that is a terrible thing to tell somebody (laughs) it is a whole lot of those little things and that's the thing with this relationship there's all these microaggressions on his part there's tiny little things that he is doing that are leading up to this kind of this escalating situation of doom and that's where midsummer is actually really interesting because you come to this, oh, they're this wonderful place and everyone's happy and everybody's like having a really good time. And then the cracks in the surface start to show through. Cause I mean, really, this film is just like, how do you join a cult? This is, this should have been titled like, do you want to join a cult? Because this is how you end up in a cult. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. It, it, but I do, I like in watching it, like I've watched this, this is a film I've probably watched too many times at this point. <laughs> You know, when we were talking about uh, Hereditary, I mm-hmm. brought up, I was like, yeah, I watched both of these together and that was probably not a great no, idea. No, I, the last time I watched it, I was actively thinking about how different things could, would have or could have played out if Christian had been supportive of her through the entire thing. Yeah. Like if there may have been a way for them to have escaped at some point. Yeah. But then also I'm like, No. Right. It was always going to end the way that it ends. So I don't, I don't know. Like, I think that if they had been different people, that's the only way, but they are who they are because Danny is this person that's looking for empathy. She is actively seeking empathy in everyone around her. And clearly like she has this boyfriend who's just lacking empathy towards her, I should say. And we don't know, again, we don't know how this relationship started. We don't know if he was a good boyfriend before we don't know what she was like before this stress and mental kind of anguish has like really worn her down. And she has kind of become this person who's very anxious all the time and clingy. And, and I say clingy is not in a negative term. Like I kind of, I want to put that out there because she's really suffered a great loss. People are obviously her behavior is, I think, allowed yes given yeah. what's happened given, and, yeah but we don't know what she was like before this so i Correct. think i think there's some kind of missing elements in this that we were just dropped into the situation where we are led to believe that one one partner needs support and the other one is unable to give them support and in part i think that's because christian is such a passive person throughout the entire film he lets these things happen to him like i yes. mean he's a grad student who doesn't have a thesis and he just sort of decides to to do a thesis because he's here and it's easy. Like, why wouldn't he just study this? Essentially stealing 
yes, his friends. Yes. I think that that is a, a you put that really well as far as like things that are just happened to him because mm-hmm. it becomes very apparent as the yeah at the climax of the film. It's like oh, the, like he just looks bewildered. But he lets these things. Yeah, and it's because that's who he is as a person. Because these things started to escalate, and and she's like, I want to leave. Even Danny is like, No, I'm ready to leave. Because like, what would have happened if they had both left then? Like if they had just both like booked it out and then. And he'd been like supportive and been like, yeah, you know, you need some space. Let's go take a break and we'll be back or whatever. That doesn't happen. He's like, no, this is their beliefs and we have to respect it. And it's like, excuse me, two people just threw themselves off a cliff and then one of them didn't die. So then they got beaten to death with essentially a big hammer. And your response to this is, is no, no, it's anthropological. Like, and that's what I'm saying. Like super passive where his, the way he reacts depends upon everyone around him. Whereas she is very much like, no, no, this is, we can't do this. And that's kind of telling, I think, and probably how their relationship might have played out before that point as well. Yeah. He's just essentially following the direction of the wind. He's Mm -hmm. letting it take him wherever Mm -hmm. it does, because obviously his life is directionless. Yeah. Yeah. And, and she, I think is afraid to like recognize that about him because he he forgets her birthday. Like he takes her to Sweden on her birthday and forgets it. That was another thing that I I, I was thinking about, um, you know, after the first time seeing it is obviously um, Pele is, um, he has decided on her from the beginning. Like he does that before they leave, before that beautiful drawing, that drawing of her. And then he is the one who remembers, he knows that it's her birthday. Yes. Yes. And I also think about like, how much different would it have been if it, if he, she had just come there with him? Yeah. And like, how, how would that have played out? Like, would it have been as horrific or would she have just been like, okay. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the ending clearly would have been different in that respect too, but yeah, they, that could have happened, but Christian wouldn't break up with her. <laughs> yeah. He just wants to let it linger. He wants but. to let it linger. And, and that's the thing is that as it, as it lingers, it lingers badly. Yeah, I think that for this film, there's certainly everyone has had this breakup. Everyone has had the breakup where you literally want to burn it to the ground. Yeah. And and, I mean, do you think that Danny would have been as susceptible to being pulled into this cult if she had not had these experiences with Christian? Do you think that this kind of set the foundation, like all of this gaslighting and these microaggressions kind of set? Because she, like you said, she is. She wants someone to feel with her or to let her feel and give her the space to feel these things. Because the entire film, she is bottling it up. You can see her when she has like her panic attack in the bathroom, which turns into the panic attack and the airport, the airplane bathroom, which turns into the panic attack while she's on drugs where every time she separates herself from it and anytime she's about to feel something negative or unhappy, she pulls it back and she Mm -hmm. pulls it back. And all she really wants is a space, a safe space until they tell her she can let it go. And they, Mm -hmm. and they wallow in it with her. And that's the thing is like, I wonder if she wasn't, if she had, was not as fragile given everything that's happened and how unsupportive Christian was, if she would have fallen into it as easily. Right. I, I don't know. Like we just have no way of knowing that because like, would Christian always have taken the path that he took? Like, I kind of think so. Oh, <laughs> I kind of, I kind of no think question. So. Yeah. No, yeah. His, his end and his demise, that that's predestiny <laughs> at its finest. Yeah. That was what was going to happen. It was to him. what was going to happen to him. Especially cause like you have this idea that 
all of your friends have suddenly kind of disappeared and you're hanging it out here in this kind of thing. Because let's be honest, like we always knew that Mark, the Will Poulter, he was going to get it. Like he, he's clearly, he he deserved it. (laughs) Maybe just don't pee on things. Maybe just pee in designated areas. Like maybe you just don't don't whip it out. Don't pee in sacred space. I know. I know that. I know that people are, are, are very proud of their equipment a lot of times, but there are places there you just don't need to have it out. Yeah. And sacred spaces are those places. Every time something happens to someone, it's it's earned to well, a certain degree. In their group, yes. The in other group. group. The, the, two, the other couple, yeah. I <laughs> felt for them. Let's talk about, like, a pause for a moment to show the healthy relationship that uh, ends up in much the same. Well, because as we were just talking about it, I'm like, do you think that if, if Christian had been supported <laughs> and they had left, that Maybe, everything would be fine? No, no because no, we saw what were, happened to that couple. We saw what happened to that to couple that, that tried to leave. And that's, like, a really good, like, kind of warning bell, too, because the couple that was just like, he's like, I'm just going to get the car and then I'll be back. And then just doesn't come back and then she's like well he wouldn't leave me like her steadfast belief that like well he wouldn't leave me of the other Taurus. like you have an idea for the solid foundation of how good their relationship yeah. was because she never wavers on that and he's like okay well like i'll take you back and then she disappears and then you're like oh oh no <laughs> that didn't go well and it didn't and like because they weren't they didn't seem to be chosen for like a karmic purpose they were just there they were they were yeah they were there um they were and they were necessary sacrifices yeah yeah yeah. but i think we don't feel a whole lot when we see what's happened to those two no but i think the other deaths in the group for like i mean it's not a big spoiler to be like people die but when you find out what happens both like mark and josh you're just like yeah okay they deserve it. And why do we feel like they deserve it? Are you asking me? Yeah. Mark and Josh, why did why do we feel like why they do deserve- we feel like it? Because they've both they've both transgressed. Right. Like they've transgressed on this culture. I mean, as horrific as their practices are displayed to us, like they have they have they've transgressed. But yeah. do you think that it's because they transgressed on the culture or do you think it's because they trans- transgressed on Danny? Fuck. <laughs> I've I've never even thought of it that way. Because like, I think that's why we feel that it's more deserved. Yeah. Because of the way that they've treated her. Because that's the, the way the story's framed, is that it's framed as in on her. Yeah. And like her feelings and the way that she is kind of like centered in all of this. Huh. I'm gonna have to I don't know. Like that. I no, just like this. No, it's a good point. Yeah. Um I'd never even thought about that. I I and I, the reason I've probably not thought about that <laughs> is that, um, and we'll discuss this. Mm-hmm. Like we all know what know. my feeling is on right, this. Right, right, and we'll talk about that. We'll <laughs> and that's probably that. why I haven't thought about it that way. But yeah, like I mean, this entire vacation is a horror movie trope, as is the idea that like you have your young, attractive cast that goes to this this faraway place, and then bad things happen to them. But it's also taken as like a uh, yeah, it's just a great breakup movie <laughs> because Christian, because when Christian really transgresses, like we, we go through this whole thing and like we watch her forgive him like over and over for things. And we watch her take this upon herself and minimize what he is doing to her. But it is only at the end after he is again, they've both been drugged, which is important. And then she's been drugged and brought into part of the group to 
behave like to basically be part of them. Like, you know, she's dancing with them. She's the May queen. Yeah. Yeah. But even before that, like she's dancing with them, she's becoming like becoming one with them. All the women are like surrounding her. They bring her into the kitchen and they start to like, they start. She's actively taking part in their their lifestyle. Um, Well, and that's the thing too, is like they start like, they start like giving her clothing, like, and then when they give her the apron and like, she starts to slowly like slip in to their community as opposed to like, even before Christian is drugged, like, their leader warns him where it's just like, we're, we're the, cause he has the food and he's like, I, I think I, I think I ate one of her pubic hairs. And they're like, that's probably true. Cause like the, the girl doing the quote unquote love spell on him, he is cognizant of these things happening around him. Yeah. Especially that, that whole mm-hmm. aspect of like the, 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 you know, the, the love spell, like the, the pubic hair. Yeah. And then obviously like, if you didn't notice that you're, beverage is a completely different color than everyone else's yeah. like yeah he, again he lets these things happen to him because i think in this particular instance with like the love spell situation he just wants to see how it plays out yeah that's yeah. i think that's part of it because he's like well i want to study your culture and he's he's acting like he's not a part of it which anytime you come into any culture at all you have inserted yourself into it and you have to behave as if you know you have but his very passive role is to the point of like, she even says like, I give you permission. Like, oh, you know, I give you, I give you permission to father this child in this community and like conversation that he has with the leader. And he's just like, yeah, okay. Like there's no kind of argument that he already has like a, not a very strong argument that he has with already has a girlfriend or that like, no, he's not interested in participating in any, any sort of like sexual rituals with the community he's like, Oh, Oh, and just kind of deadpans it. Yeah. He wants to see how it's going to play. Yeah. Out. And he's, I mean, if you play bitch games, <sighs> get bitch prizes. <laughs> if you get drugged and allow yourself to be let off to have sex with a girl of indeterminate age, which is, she's probably old enough. Like, I mean, I'm not, you know, trying to make that argument or anything like that, but like some girl, you don't even know, like what, what do you think was going to happen, my dude? Like, <laughs> I mean, maybe not what happens, but I mean, it, he's a he. It makes him a completely unbearable boyfriend, uh, doesn't ha, ha, it? Ha. Oh, that was <laughs> God. You have the dad jokes. <laughs> I'm so sorry. No, you're not. You're not sorry. Don't apologize for things you're not sorry for. But I, I, like, kind of stepping back from mm-hmm. you know the subject of the movie and everything, it is. It's gorgeous. It is. It is a beautiful, it is. beautifully shot film. Mm-hmm. And like these horrific things are happening um, in broad daylight, in broad daylight. Um, Which is something I always love when horror does. I love it when horror films happen during the day. It throw it, it makes it that much worse <laughs> mm-hmm. because it's you don't ex- that daytime is safe. Yeah, Scary things don't happen in the daytime. Except when it's not. Except when it's not. Yeah, I know that mm-hmm. that was that was kind of brilliant. But um just the backdrop, you know, it's so, um, bucolic. It's mm-hmm. this lovely, you know, countryside. The colors are so rich and saturated and so bright and everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All of that. It's, it's gorgeous to look at and it's like just this beautiful, beautiful, grotesque thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cause I mean, at the end of the film, you have this moment where Danny has won the May queen. She is, she's become this kind of symbolic figure for the Harga and all sort of stuff. And she's presented what I like about the end of the film and what makes it, I think one of the most perfect breakup movies is that she has presented with this choice where she is the one that gets to decide, am I going to continue doing what I'm doing 
or am I going to not do it? And he's, he's there in front of her and she knows what he has done. And he knows that she knows what he has done. And there's nothing that he can say in that moment to talk his way out of it. He can't manipulate her any longer. He's not physically not capable. Of I say, it. He, yeah. he literally cannot literally, talk his way out. Like, of it. <laughs> they drug him. They give him the extra stuff where he is no longer able to move or to speak. And he can only sit there and you feel the weight of her choice. Like you feel the weight of if she wants to be with him anymore, she gets to make that choice and there's nothing he can do about it. And in that moment, I think we feel as the audience, all of the power shifts from Christian in this relationship to Danny in that relationship. And that is such a cathartic moment. I think for everybody watching it, cause you're like, she has all the power. She hasn't had any power this entire film. Like it's all been Christian's making the choices. Christian's making the decisions. Christian is the one leading. And since his thing is just to let things happen to him, yes. things just happen to her. Yes. She's just caught in like, mm-hmm. the, you know, the crossfire of it. Yeah. And then at the one point where he maybe doesn't want things to just happen to him, he has no choice. Like he has chosen to be passive. So he is rendered completely passive. And then she has that choice to make of there is one final sacrifice that we have left. Who will it be? And, uh, yeah, that's how you get sewn up into a bear suit. (laughs) It's, uh, it's beautiful. Like just, you said it's cathartic and, Mm -hmm. I mean, the film itself does a good job of conditioning us to to that too. Cause like you have this big swelling music and everything. Like it seems like a really like a win. Mm -hmm. It does. It it feels like a win for her, but is it? Oh, all right. You know, we're going to talk, we're having this this conversation. Okay. The end of the film. I think this film has a happy ending. I think it is a happy ending, not just from, you know, this, her having the power in this moment and everything. I think after the credits roll and everything, she has a beautiful, wonderful <laughs> life with, she, she has wanted empathy and she has wanted a family. Cause obviously the murder suicide of her, you know, her sister and, and her parents, that whole thing. I don't think we need to know anymore to know that obviously that was not a good home situation. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of trauma there for probably everyone involved. So she's just been walking around wanting a family and she finally, finally has it. People who understand her, people who want to feel with her. Yeah. I, and it's beautiful. Like I said, this whole scenery is beautiful. Like I think it's a happy ending. Cult be damned. And I, I, you are not the only person that feels that way. I think a lot of people feel this happy ending. I don't, I feel like she has come from one situation where she was, basically kind of used and is put into another situation now where she's also used, but for different reasons. And is it, is it a situation where she's happy to be used? We don't know like that, that last moment where she kind of smiles it thing. I feel like it's just everything breaking inside of her. And and I know a lot of people are like, Oh yeah, she's finally come home. She finally found a family, but girl, you're in a cult. (laughs) And, and I think that's like, I think that's something that, needs to be explored as well is that if if you leave an inherently abusive relationship and find yourself in another new inherently abusive relationship is that a happy ending okay (laughs) so going back to you saying that she's being used Mm -hmm. i so whenever they're doing the dance around the maypole to figure out who the may queen is Mm -hmm. going to be 
she obviously she is I she's cognizant of kind of the situation that's happening and kind of where the, I think she knows kind of where this is leading to a certain degree. And she is still actively participating in it. Mm-hmm. I don't feel like it's a situation where she's being used. The circumstances that got her to this point, to this place, or maybe not the purest, and maybe there, you know, there was some kind of darkness there. And obviously, like the shit that's happened since they've been at this festival. But I think by this point, she has made an active decision on her. From the moment she breaks with the women, like it breaks with the women and is crying with them and all of that. Like, I think at that point, she's she's all in. And I don't think it's necessarily like a brainwashing situation or a... um you know, she's kind of been blinded by the cold. I think that she she knows what's going on. I think that she wants to be part of it. I think that she needs to be part of it because she's so kind of caught up in everything and everything is so painful. So broken. So broken. Yeah. Because from the beginning, she has also been manipulated because Pele doesn't. I mean, he angles to get her there. And once she's there, yeah. he angles to show her how special she is. There's a lot of attention paid to her to make her feel like she is part of them and that could become a family. Because when he talks about this idea of family and that they are all family, this is very deliberate. This is very, this is language that's couched in a way that's going to appeal to her directly. So by the time she's already there, when she's feeling this swept up in this moment and swept up in all these things, she makes, she does. She actively makes a decision to burn it to the ground, literally <laughs> with Christian inside of it. <laughs> and when I say it, I mean, you know, this relationship, she's burning it to the ground, but is it because that she has truly freed herself from this relationship or is it because she's latching on to something else? So I, I don't know that this story has a happy ending. It has a very cathartic ending. I want that to be out there that I feel is that this film and you feel as the audience, you are meant to feel like, oh, this is such a like you take this deep breath of release. You let it of go. Just, you let it yeah. go because she's letting go of this relationship where where everything is so toxic and bad. But I don't know necessarily that it's a happy ending. Right. Because and also because it's it's important to note, too, that like this film Ari Aster made during a breakup as well. Like this is his ode to your feelings during a breakup that come out in this guise of a horror movie. But I think the the whole catharsis bit of it is interesting to bring up and say like, yes, it is valid that you're happy for this catharsis that she has because I feel the same way about hereditary. Like, I mean Mm -hmm. the ending of that movie, not a happy ending. I've jokingly said that I think it's a happy (laughs) ending before just because that whole movie is dealing with like this kind of, again, a cycle mm-hmm. yeah. of like trauma that a family and has and of, of abuse. And it's finally ended. Yeah. At the end of that movie, there is a catharsis to that. Like this prophecy or whatever has been fulfilled. This cycle can stop. And it, it's kind of, it's the same in both of them. There's like, you can finally let your breath you go can breathe yeah. again. And I think that Ari Aster is really great in making you hold your breath. And I think that sensation of feeling like you're holding your breath is such a common one when you're at the end of a relationship and you know, it's coming and you don't want it to come. Like you're just like, cause you want to hold on to the good feelings. You want to hold on to the, like the relationship that you had, not the one that you have, but the one that you had. So you hold your breath and you are just like, maybe if I just hold on tight enough that it's all going to be okay. And there just comes that point where you make a decision. And in, in this case, like, you make the decision. I'm specifically talking about where it has to come to an end. And then you let go of that breath. And then suddenly you just feel lighter and you have that breakthrough of this isn't what I want. 
this isn't what was good for me. This isn't what was best for me. No matter how this started, this is not what it is now. And Midsummer is just all of that sensation into that one scene where the pyramid building is burning to the ground and the women are screaming and Danny's crying and then she stands up and then she just like smiles triumphantly. And it is a triumphant, weirdly triumphant smile that makes you feel like, Oh shit. Like, Oh shit. It's kind of like, I think I left the movie being like, Oh shit. This is a very powerful moment, but is it a happy one? And I, I don't think so. It's interesting kind of what you're talking about, just the whole going back to like the relationship you have, not the one that you had mm-hmm. and talking about in reference to the movie, because I was like, oh yeah, that's kind of like what we explore in, in life after Beth. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it's interesting that even though like all of these films are about breakups, they are each in this distinct period of the breakup. And I feel like we kind of went in like the reverse order <laughs> because like you've got the brood, which is like the really, like really ugly, ugly end of it. And then kind of the life after Beth where you're in that middle where it's just kind of like torturous mm-hmm. because it's, it's the limbo. It's this lim- after the breakup. It's the yeah. most uncomfortable liminal space you've ever been in before in your <laughs> yes, entire life. That's it. Um, and I love liminal spaces, but not that one. <laughs> um, and then you have Midsummer, which is kind of really the beginning of things falling apart. And it seems like it's not the beginning, but that end of it is, is her like finally letting go of that. Yeah. 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 It's interesting that you say it is the reverse order. Yeah. Because- I didn't even realize that when we were like, when we were like, we're, we're going to talk about them in this <laughs> order. Cause Midsummer is, it's the breakup. Yeah. Life after Beth is, yeah, that little bit of time afterwards where it sucks. And, and yeah, by the time you get to the brood, like you're over it, you're done, you're finished. It's still messy as but fuck though. But it's still messy. <laughs> you can't quite escape. Like even when you're done, you can't quite escape everything. In short, breakups suck. (laughs) They're hard and they're painful. And I I think that that's the beauty of filmmaking is that you can experience these things and you don't have to do it with just like, let's make a breakup movie. And as much as I love like forgetting Sarah Marshall, which I think this is a a non sequitur in a way. I think forgetting Sarah Marshall is the best breakup movie that I can put into words. I think that's fantastic. But you don't have to do breakup movies like that. Horror is a an escapist genre. You can do anything in horror and you can tell any kind of story in it if you just find the right framing, you know, device for it. And I think that that's that's really powerful because you can do a lot of things in horror that you can't do in any other genre. You can't strangle your wife in a in a romantic comedy. I mean, you could, it would be weird. It would but be weird. Like you can't, you know, no, I think, I think, um, like all, all media is a, is a great way to kind of work through our traumas and mm-hmm. our pain. And, you know, of course, like breakups are going to get that treatment as well, but horror specifically, since you get to use these things that are so like fantastical and gruesome is the perfect vehicle for it. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. We can tell these stories in this genre in a way that you just, you just can't anywhere else. And they make them more powerful and more visceral. I think that's, you can tell. Visceral is the, the appropriate word. (laughs) It's right up there with wet. (laughs) Call back. (laughs) Yeah. Your call back to your wet body horror. I think that you can tell a lot of really visceral stories in horror that don't, don't work anywhere else. No, And I think these are really good examples of that. And gut, gut wrenching. uh, can be literal. Yeah. Yeah. 
you can make it even more brutal than the <laughs> the reality. I yeah, that's why I think that I really like these three movies because they do that. And I don't know. I'd be curious to hear if anyone else has any other really good go to breakup movies that are horror centric. I feel like I'm perfectly prepped for Valentine's Day. <laughs> right. Are you ready? You got I'm your ready. playlist. We're ready to go. Yeah. I hope that everyone has a fantastic Valentine's Day and may very tall vampire women step on you to your heart's content. Yes. Death by Snoo Snoo. Death by Snoo Snoo. Culture Cryptids is written, produced, and directed by me, JD. And me, Corey. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Culture Cryptids. Questions, comments, corrections, hate mail? Email us at culturecryptids at gmail.com. We'll see you next time. <laughs> <laughs>